There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to Chronic, a podcast about living well when you're anything but. I'm Lucy Pasha Robinson, opinion editor at HuffPost and chronic illness sufferer. In each episode, I'll be asking one guest what adapted well-being looks like, and we'll learn about one chronic illness from the thinkers, writers, activists and dreamers who live with them. This week, we have an amazing guest, Jamisha Prescott, who is a BBC journalist and founder of You Look OK To Me, a platform promoting lupus awareness and lives lived with invisible illness. Welcome, Jam. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was a sweet intro, by the way. I really, (laughs) really liked that. (laughs) Okay, well, I want to jump straight in and I want to ask you about some of the misconceptions that you've faced around chronic illness. You've spoken a lot about like your illness being invisible. What have been some of the funniest or weirdest or most surprising misconceptions that you've come across in your chronic illness journey, if I can call it that? It's so interesting when it comes to misconceptions, because like you always remember like there's a select examples of stuff that's happened in different aspects of the condition. So I do remember my earliest one, which I did find quite funny, was I was getting my wisdom teeth taken out and I went to King's Hospital and I decided to get the lift because I wasn't feeling that energetic that day. I mean, there's something strange about lifts, right? Everyone always has this interesting kind of mindset on lifts etiquette and you're not supposed to get it one floor. If the lift goes to the floor, you can get it to whatever floor you want. But there has been many instances, I think twice, where I've actually just had a word with someone quickly where they made a comment after someone left the lift to the next floor, to one floor. And they're like, oh, I could have got the stairs, couldn't he? And a nurse was in the lift and she was like, oh, you know, you're so young. Like, why are you not getting this? It's only floor four because she saw what button I pressed. And I'm like, I have lupus. And she just was like, oh, oh, okay, I'm so sorry. Oh, you're such a strong girl. Oh, my God. And I'm like, first of all, you're in a hospital, man. Like, if any place, like, you're going to, like, make an assumption about someone, it's not hospital. But the second thing is also, you don't know me. I don't know how strong I appeared just, like, two seconds in that lift with her. But clearly she felt the need to tell me that. But it was, that was the first time, I think, where I'd experienced someone just assuming that I'm a young person I can just do anything I can do anything physically when actually I have a chronic illness a chronic condition the power of putting them right you know that you are holding that secret weapon in your arsenal and like that's quite an interesting dynamic as well when do you hold your tongue and when do you not hold your tongue do you know what I would say I'm also hold my tongue when it's myself when it's other people I actually tend to speak up a little bit more because it's almost like I don't know. I don't want it to be, I don't want it to be done to anybody else. I think when it's me, sometimes I hold the awkwardness, especially when it's a group setting. I think just because it was just us two, I was just like, I'm just going to say it right now. But I think a lot of chronic illness patients, including myself, we kind of value the reading the room. So sometimes we'll put our feelings aside and then because it might be awkward for the other person, we'll sometimes think of their feelings first. But when it's someone else, you know how that feels. So yeah. You, you might want to intervene. You want to stick up for them. Yeah. I get the impression that your diagnosis journey has really made you an activist. And I know that advocacy is super important for you, mm. especially in your community. Yeah. 
Tell me a bit more about that and like some of the challenges you faced. Yeah, well, you know, you never think you're going to be in a place you are, like when it comes to activism and advocacy. But with my journey, I went through a lot of like misdiagnosis and gaslighting and all of these things um, multiple times for multiple diagnoses. And so I can use some of those lessons learned to try and spread it as much as possible so that other people can skip a few steps that I didn't ha- that I didn't get to skip. Mm. I don't think that many people teach us to self-advocate. I don't think people know how. And so I try my best as much as I can for friends that are going down like that journey to be like, okay, listen, you need to write a list of your symptoms. Or when your doctor says this, you actually don't have to go away and just accept it. Mm. But that just, that not only goes for chronic illness patients, that goes for absolutely anybody. I think too many times based on our system, we kind of go, oh, I'll just leave it. I'll just leave it. Yeah. Like, no. And especially men, you told me. Oh my gosh, men, men, like... (laughs) Men, where do we start? Guys, come on, guys. Like, seriously, a lot of men in my life, like my friends, my brother, my father, like a lot of the men in my life just don't get checked. Maybe that's tied to masculinity and multiple other things, but I try my best to really push them. I think for a lot of uh, women or non-binary people who are used to being dismissed, like, in healthcare, um, many of them have gone through experiences where, like they've learned to kind of make that start to push themselves. But I think a lot of guys just don't like, they. I, I think, I guess like it's tied to maybe feeling weak or whatever, mm. but um, mm. no, no, not on my watch. Good for you. That's me. amazing. Everyone needs a friend like Jan. <laughs> <laughs> maybe for some things. But... <laughs> um, so you, the condition that you were diagnosed with is lupus. And you are also in the process of seeking a diagnosis for a gynecological condition that you think you might have. Tell us a little bit about the years that led up to that diagnosis of lupus. I know for you, it was a real challenge getting to that point. Yes, Um, I, you know, you always look retrospectively after you get your diagnosis as to how long things are going on. And I feel like I was starting to get sick around 15, 16 years old. So at the end of high school, I would get really tired joint pain but uh, muscle aches but I would write it off as growing they would always say it's growing pains I was a tall child so like even from when I was a, like three so they would always say oh she's got growing pains she's got growing pains and then when it got to like 16 17 when I was in sixth form it just started to get worse so I thought oh, okay um doctor's telling me I'm fine says I'm nothing wrong so it clearly must be my lifestyle habits so I changed the way I ate I you know, started exercising more. I tried to make sure I was taking control of my health and I was probably the fittest I ever was and then had the biggest flare-up of my life. Like I was knocked down um, in bed all the time, missing school, running out of breath when talking, you know, these strange things that were happening that I just didn't know why. Are they traditional symptoms of lupus? Yeah. Would you say now looking back, can you see that that was like classic textbook symptoms? 100% but the annoying thing about lupus is that classic textbook symptoms of lupus are also classic textbook symptoms of many other conditions so Mm. whether that could be fibromyalgia Lyme disease arthritis they checked for so many things and many people told me I was fine until eventually um, I googled my symptoms and I made a list of four conditions that I felt like it was which is Lyme disease lupus arthritis and fibromyalgia I didn't diagnose myself but I made a list of things I thought it was And then I took that to my doctor and said, look, I would like to be tested for this. I learned what blood tests you need for those, because what happens is, is they say, oh, we've checked all your bloods and it's fine. But actually, those are basic ones. It's not the ones you need for lupus. And eventually got referred, had a crazy amount of blood tests. Like I had like, they took like 10 or 11 vials of blood and an antibody came back that indicated that it was lupus, got diagnosed sort of. 
And then a few months later, I followed up with a different rheumatologist who didn't have my notes and then went, you know what, I don't think it's lupus. I think you have a mental health condition that's causing your symptoms. I think you need to see a psychotherapist and take um, take an antidepressant. I think that's what's going to help you, which was really frustrating because obviously that's not to discount that mental health conditions are very serious, but I knew that it wasn't that that was causing the symptoms, whether it can work together, but I just knew that wasn't the only thing. Mm. I can't imagine how that must have felt. That must have just been absolutely, uh, I don't know. I would have just felt so defeated to hear that. To f- the, the feeling of not being believed, there's, yeah. nothing, there's nothing quite like it. It, it really no takes so much out of you. When it's a doctor as well, like if this person doesn't believe me, then who else? Because this this stops this basically stops my journey. Like you're a gatekeeper mm. at this in this stage. Mm. To this day, I still struggle with believing myself that I have lupus and I've had it for six years, six and a half years now. What was yeah no it, it wow it's six years now. Like I got diagnosed mm. officially again in October, so I ended up having to see a different rheumatologist who's like a professor in it, and he literally casually was like. Oh, of course it's lupus. So flippant, you know, and I love him. He's a great guy, but it was just like, you don't know what I've been through to be saying it like that. Yeah. Um, but as I said... And, and the fact that you think now, sometimes you still feel like, do yeah. I really have lupus? Yeah. What, what is going through your head when you're thinking that? Are you thinking like, am I just exaggerating? Am I... So it centers around the fact that I had a diagnosis and it got reversed, right? So that's more mm. so kind of where it lies. Rather than not being, simply just not being believed, it's someone told me I had lupus, then somebody else said I don't, and then someone else said mm. I do. So there's always a part of me that feels like when I go to that rheumatologist every year, I have my checkups or twice a year, that that's the year they're going to say, no, actually we're going to reverse it because it has happened before. That's a really scary feeling as well. Like I haven't had an experience of my diagnosis being reversed, but I really relate to to those really difficult feelings around not being believed and... Mm having to just like relentlessly advocate for yourself it took me more than 10 years to get diagnosed with endometriosis and I was diagnosed in 2014 as well the the legacy of that is definitely still now for me feeling quite apologetic for it and like I know I've had all these surgeries and I know that it it's stage four it's the most severe it can be but am I just being am I overreacting have you had experience feeling like oh is it just hypochondria is it just me overreacting sometimes what I've been finding I was doing was denying myself treatment and denying myself help because I thought I didn't need it because I thought I was just being silly and being a hypochondriac so even with the lupus diagnosis I was just like oh this is just you overreacting and you need to you know not taking myself to A&E sometimes when I should have not believing yourself properly I think not believing yourself is really that's where self-advocacy comes in but it's why I always say I've not reached the pinnacle of self-advocacy I encourage others to do it but there's still work to be done on myself it's a work in progress yeah always obviously your lupus journey is a separate thing to your kind of quest for a diagnosis for your gynecological issues Tell me about your experience as a black woman trying to navigate that diagnosis. Well, as you said, it's ongoing. So <laughs> it's not that it's not the most fun time at the moment. But, you know, I mean, you say black woman, I go back to being a black girl, you know, like a black mm. girl that wasn't. Wasn't given delicate treatment, wasn't given mm. innocence in a sense. That's what I felt like, I guess, like I'm 12 or 13 starting my first period. and. I'm in so much pain that coding is not touching the pain. 
Like you give it, they give it, like you start with ibuprofen. They say, oh, I should take a painkiller. Then it gets to the point where I'm being prescribed methanamic acid, cocodamol, all of these strong painkillers that children of that age should not really be on just for period pain or period pain that's lasting eight days or nine days of heavy bleeding, becoming anemic often because of the bleeding. And no one, I don't know, no one seems to kind of sit and say, how are you dealing with this? Are you okay? I think, you know, this struggle isn't normal. And I just, you can't prove it. That's this tricky thing. It's like, you can't prove that it's the reason why, that me being black is the reason why I wasn't really given that treatment. But I do feel like that had something to do with it because there's an innate expectation for black women to be strong and to just, yeah, you're a strong woman. You're a strong girl. Like, you know, it's what you got to kind of get through. And then later on in my life, like I started to realize, you know what, speaking to other women and non-binary people and, and, and anyone else who deals with gynecological issues, basically, that this is not normal. That many people were telling me that either had endo, PCOS or anything. They were like, look, I really feel like just it's worth getting checked. And when I started to then start my journey again as an older person, as, a, as an adult, that had a bit more space to advocate for myself, then that's when the comments like, black women bleed more than white women come up. Or black women tend to da-da-da-da-da more. And that's where I was like, oh, wow, no, this is a real thing. Like, you really think that this is okay that I'm experiencing this because of my ethnicity. That's and also, so shocking. Yeah. Also, that's not, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, so tell us about that. Um, I want to hear about that experience, that encounter you had, because it's just awful. It was a bizarre encounter. Yeah, so the doctor was a white man and I rang him on the phone because I decided I am going to start this journey again. We were on the phone talking and he said, Jamisha, that sounds like endometriosis. You know, I don't know if you've heard of the condition, but I think you should come in and we should have a chat about it. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is the first time a doctor's like actually brought me a solution or brought me a potential thing we can discover together. So I go in mm. and he's changed his tune. It's like he was a completely different person and was like, okay, why are you here? And I was like, well, you told me to come in and we were going to talk about potentially learning about endometriosis or trying to see if that's what I've got. He went, mm, well, and then started looking and scrunching his face. And he's like, your symptoms don't really seem to be aligning with endo and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I feel like they do. And I explained intense pain and I bleed for like nine days and it's very heavy. And he went, oh, well, you know, I, to be honest, just black women tend to bleed a little bit more than white women. And I remember like just looking at him like, and I just wish back then I really would have challenged it because I didn't. I was so shocked, I guess, with everything that's going on. I didn't say anything. And I remember mentioning it, mentioning it to other people and also other gynecologists. And they were like, absolutely not. That's not true. That is not correct. Um, and also some anyone kind of bleeding as long as you do, it's not, it's not normal. It's not okay. Like nine days is not okay. So yeah. And only through listening to people say that again is why I'm even starting this process again. But it's like, why is a GP saying that to me when it's not true? Like, and I've spoken to other black Asian women as well, and they've been told similar things. And it's like, even if that were the case, is there not a reason to then check why black women do bleed more? Like, if, 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 let's say if it was true. Is that is that not a case to... Ex why is it then dismissed just because we're going... It, so if it's white women going through it, then we're going to investigate? Like, I don't really... Mm. I'm hard to get... It's, it's tricky to get my words out at the moment because it's quite frustrating, but it's it's... I, yeah, and these are also difficult and painful memories, right? Like these are these are deeply personal, deeply intimate kind of refusals to validate what is a very real thing that you've been experiencing, and potentially on grounds of you know your ethnicity, 
or your gender and that is that's extremely painful so I'm not surprised you know that that it might be a hard subject to talk on I mean I I, I cried my eyes out after that appointment I just cried because it wasn't even just simply someone that didn't believe it was someone that seems like he was starting to on the phone and then took it away and made me mm. feel I don't know made it made it just feel not real and it's it, it's quite hard and as I said to you before the annoying part about all of this is you a lot of black women will say the same thing and perhaps Asian women as well that you have an inkling that your ethnicity is impacting your treatment but it's hard to prove it's mm. very very so then you sit there knowing this information is likely true but not really being able to act on it because because what proof do you have? That's also what's quite difficult about well, it. Well, it is basically gaslighting, isn't it? It's uh, yeah, really, really hard to put your finger on, but you know that 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 something isn't right, and and the effect of of not having your complaint kind of believed or taken seriously, <laughs> I can imagine, is also really damaging. It's part of the same thing of not being believed in the first place, I guess. You know, it's sort of mm. running on those same themes. So I want to talk to you about pain off the back of what we were just saying about navigating the healthcare system as both a woman and a black woman. There's a lot of misconceptions around black women having a higher pain barrier, for example, or black women bleeding more. What has been your experience specifically in navigating your pain journey and your treatment for your pain in the medical system? I think pain is like an interesting topic to talk about because even vocalising when I'm in pain, what it feels like is quite uh, is quite a revolutionary thing for me because coming from um, an Afro-Caribbean background, talking about pain is not really a conversation we have, especially just like with black communities. It's almost like we've internalised this concept that we're supposed to just endure and we are strong so we can just, yeah, no, don't talk about it, just we can just we can overcome and I don't think that's very healthy at all I think it can be empowering in some aspects you can empower yourself but at the same time don't invalidate like how you feel so even speaking about it openly like to you here or on 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 online or in person and saying I actually feel this way I think is important because obviously as we as you've just said historically um there's been these ideas that black people feel less pain and that's been killing us it's the reason why you know it's probably it's probably leading up to the reason why black women die uh, on a higher rate uh, when they're giving birth. You know, all of these reasons are killing us. So for me, it is in, in a sense a act of activism to talk about your pain openly and be okay with saying I feel hurt, I, I'm hurting. It's it's a really complex subject, but I think one of the key things is vocalizing like vocalising as much as you can when you are. So it normalises, especially on being a black woman, it normalises that we do feel pain. We are sensitive and that's normal. That's okay. It's not something to be ignored and just overcome just because I'm a black woman. Mm. I suppose that your experience also speaks to the duality of being a chronic illness sufferer, of of feeling that responsibility for activism, especially uh, in the circumstances you describe as, as feeling that speaking about speaking about your pain when traditionally uh, your family for example might not have done that that's a real that's a real symbol of activism whereas equally that the pain itself can sometimes make you want to withdraw and and in, yeah. and internalize and shut yourself away yeah. and protect yourself so i think that's a really interesting duality um yeah that that and it also speaks to the individuality i suppose of each experience of chronic illness So I think one thing that we've both experienced in kind of advocating for ourselves in our diagnoses 
is um, the idea of being the perfect patient and having to find that right balance between not being too pushy, but also making sure you're doing the homework because you know that you've got to be advocating for yourself. No one else is going to be doing it for you. How have you struck that balance with healthcare professionals or how did you when you were leading up to your diagnosis? It's tricky, as you said, the perfect patient, right? Because you've got to like obviously do your research on one end, but also I've just personally got the impression from some doctors that they don't like when a patient seems like they've done their research because sometimes it can enforce more the concept that they think you're a hypochondriac or you're just Googling a symptom or you have Munchausen syndrome or something like that when actually, no, I'm just trying to like work with you as a team and, and expedite this process so it doesn't take so long. Like, um, I mean, I don't know. I just personally, I just do the work I need to do to make sure that I get the appointment that I want. Like I, I have to remind myself I'm in charge. You have the information and yes, this is like, you're my doctor or my surgeon or consultant, but I'm actually in charge of this appointment. So I slow down the speed. I, if, if they're talking too fast, excuse me, can you explain that please? Or what's that? Like I ask any questions I want. I never used to. I used mm, that's to just... hard to do as well. It's because a it's lot of so doctors hard. are quite intimidating. They are, but I've, I've got to because I rather do that than have the regret after the appointment because I've had that before. We like, oh, should I ask that? Should I ask that? Should I ask that? Mm. And now you got to wait five months for the next one. So I have my list of my my symptom list. So I write my dates and I write it down like what I was feeling, and then I print it off. And then I come in and I'm like, okay, cool. So what I'm gonna and I and I take my time and I don't I don't. I don't rush. I don't feel rushed by them. I ask the questions I want to ask. Um, it doesn't always work because, you know, doctors are humans. Some are rude, some aren't. Mm. Um, some are not very nice. But I just kind of like do what I can to prepare myself on my end and make sure that like it's my appointment. This is my time. And um, I'm going to get everything out of it. Ask any questions I want to ask, ask as well. I'll write those down. That's made me think about my own experience because um, I don't think I'm as good as you at remembering that it's my appointment and that it's my time and not feeling rushed because I, I very often leave those appointments feeling quite harried and I can feel quite intimidated in that circumstance and I mm. I wonder if there's especially in my case because I have a gynecological condition a lot of the people that I tend to see are like senior male consultants and oh yeah I do wonder like whether the fact that I'm speaking to an older man influences my behavior in any way I wonder if it's like some internalized like I don't know patriarchal view <laughs> that like I don't know I've got to be respectful of this person's time or extra respectful because he's like an older man and he's like got a lot of authority you feeling that way and myself I also feel that way um my lupus doctor although he is very nice he comes in and shakes my hand and I feel like I'm supposed to stand up when he enters the room <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's quite normal to feel that way I think and therefore then kind of feel like you've got to be on your best behavior you know when actually mm. it's an appointment so one thing I know that you you and I definitely have in common is like the whole friendship question the people that are worth having in your life and who aren't and when I was diagnosed with endometriosis back in 2014 I was 24 all your friends are like you know just getting into the world of work and going out all the time and I found that quite difficult because suddenly my lifestyle really drastically changed and I just couldn't keep up with my friends. And there were some that were really, really great about that. And there were others that were really, really not great about that. And in the end, I did end up cutting quite a lot of those people out of my life. Um, and I know that's something that we share, Jam. You ended up cutting quite a few people out of your life too. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, uh, I would say one one particular person, unfortunately, I don't speak to anymore because of it. It's, it was for partly other reasons, but the chronic illness part and this person's inability to understand it really, I struggled with for a very long time. It wasn't like a hard cut. It was just phase out. Like I, I just continued sort of my life and, and we went separate ways, but it bothered me for a really long time because and, and and sometimes, you know, in other friendships, I would try to push myself to do things and push myself to go to things because I felt bad and I felt a bit insecure about it. And then it would make me sick. Good friendships shouldn't feel like you're having to carry that weight of the other person's expectations all the time. But I know that there was some work that you had to do with your parents to get them on board into fully helping you advocate for yourself. Yeah, my mum my also, she would sit in my appointments and stuff, so she knows exactly the journey that we both essentially were on. And so she's great, like, it's not to diminish any of that. However, I think she found it uncomfortable to see me in pain and not be able to do anything about it. And so what happens then is the person tries to fix you. So when I say fix you, it's like, come on, you know, you've been in the bed for a while, like, open the case, it's nice to get some sunlight in. Mm. Yes, sun is shining. To me personally, I don't think that's healthy. I want to acknowledge mm. what I'm in. I'm in pain today. I'm not feeling well. I'm going to sit in that and then ride out this flare up however I need to and then go from there. When it comes to other family members, though, there are just family members that just don't understand lupus at all. People struggled with the, the image of me living at home, because I still do, lying in bed, some lazy 19-year-old who's not contributing to the household, who's not making their own money, who's just some scrounger. I think that image is what some people saw in me. So earlier when we were talking about one of your worst flare-ups, you said that you were in really good shape at the time. And you mentioned previously being quite hard on your body and like pushing it to its limits and, and being very sporty. And you've spoken about almost being at war with your body in some ways and th there being a disconnect between what your brain wants your body to do and actually what you feel that you're capable of doing at any given moment. Tell me a bit more about, about that. So I felt and perhaps some ways still feel like quite disconnected to my body in a sense because I grew up very sporty from very early um so it built it built this idea that my body was something to be strict with something to be trained something to be put in line following strict things means you get the results which to some degree was the case that's how probably a lot of athletes you know think about their body to some degree um I ran track, like you had to practice, practice was hard. So therefore this concept is you have to put it through hardships in order for it to get better to do the things you want it to do. That's how I saw my body. And so then also when it started to fail on me in a sense of during that 15, 16 age bracket that I was in, where it wasn't quite performing well, then it got worse as the years went by. I blamed myself because I thought clearly I'm not being hard enough on myself. I'm not being strict enough because that's what gets results. Um, you wanted to push even more, basically. Well, yeah, because that's what works before, in my opinion. I was like, oh, okay, like it needs to be trained more then because if it's not performing, I need to eat better. I need to work out more. I need to be more strict with myself so that it's going to perform more because that's, that's the reason why I'm sick. Because if you have the doctor telling you that you're fine, then clearly it's me. So then when... I had that first flare up. I was very fit. In fact, it came, the, the flare up came after I worked out. It came the day after I had a workout. Um, had the flare up, obviously gone through all this like uh, diagnosis stuff. And so now with diagnosis, I'm like, okay, cool. Now to whip it back into shape. I hadn't shed the concept of like, still it needs to be whipped into shape. It needs to be strict with, it needs to fall in line. 
Um, and that doesn't work out with lupus. So I tried to apply those same things and I kept getting sicker and sicker and getting loads of flare ups because it was too hard. I didn't realize that actually it was something that, you know, rather than actually being so strict, I need to change my mindset of it needs compassion. It needs softness. That doesn't mean that you can't push yourself, but it means that in order for you to be in spaces where you can improve or perhaps improve your mobility, you need to be soft. But that didn't really click in my mind. And so you're looking at your body and you have this almost hatred for it because you're not performing. You're being bad. You're not like you're, you're not you're not behaving in a sense and it was quite frustrating because it's like your it's your fault even though it's me it's your fault why I'm like this when actually the light bulb went on and I realized that actually when you're compassionate when you rest when you need to rest when you give yourself space when you act a bit slower and maybe actually build up when you know that perhaps progress for fitness and health is actually not a straight line and it goes back and forth and sometimes goes way back and comes back that will see that you're now healthily um healthily on a road to acceptance of how your body is, is 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 behaving for yourself in a sense that it's just trying its best <laughs> you know what I mean it's not mm. it's not something that needs to be abused to whip to be whipped into shape it's trying its best and and it just needs a bit of time and patience but it took a long time to get there um to, to think that way for mm. sure you describe it as a road to self-acceptance do you still think you're you're on that road at different points at different times yeah it's a road but it's not a straight one like it's got a bit of roundabouts and, and and some diversions and 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 traffic cones I don't know like stuff like that it's not it's not straightforward but yes that that helps too because I think if you see it as a straight road it's like oh I'm always going to be moving forward and um sometimes you don't sometimes you move backwards but that's okay um just be be being okay with that is is important for mm. sure and I suppose also allowing yourself to have negative feelings sometimes like as you were saying about the toxic positivity mm-hmm. mindset like it, you don't always have to feel good about yourself you you can you can allow yourself to be upset and angry and annoyed that yeah. your body won't do exactly what you want it to do that I, to be honest like that's part of like the compassion for yourself because if somebody else um personally like the way I am now someone else was just feeling like kind of down I'm not gonna then like ignore them and tell them to just ignore those feelings I think it's good to explore them because if you cover them up with this fake pseudo happiness or no I need to be okay no let me not think about that let me just be then you're not actually finding the root as to why you feel that way in the first place because you're covering it up so for me the acknowledgement the compassion taking time to sit in those feelings is actually I personally think more um useful than just covering them up I just think you won't get to the root of half of your problems if you're just pretending that everything's okay quite right Jam you're so wise (laughs) (laughs) I try I try (laughs) so we're coming to the end of our of our chat I have one final question for you um but before that we're going to do a little activity together um which celebrates who we both are now on this kind of continuing (laughs) Road to acceptance, we'll call it, shall we? Um, so in the next five seconds, five <laughs> seconds might be ambitious, but <laughs> these are the criteria that, that have been put in place by my producer. So we're going to try and stick to it. In the next five seconds, um, I'd like you to write down three things that have changed about your identity since your diagnosis and that you celebrate. In five seconds. It's quite hard though, isn't it? Uh, three things. <laughs> and, and um, I should say that after we've done this, we're going to show each other. So I'm going to write it in big. 
I'm going to try and write mine in big letters. Okay, so when you're ready, I'll give us a countdown. Three, two, one, go. <laughs> I think that probably already is five seconds and I've, I've only <laughs> written one. I've we can have an extension. Of... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. That was true. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, shall we reveal? Yeah, although mine looks messy. <laughs> <laughs> messy is great. Okay, ready? Okay. Last show. Is it backwards? Oh, oh you got self-image, compassion, getting mad. Does that say? Getting mad. <laughs> yeah, mine says getting mad. Patient, self-kindness, Finish not perfect. Oh, that's so nice, Jam. Kind of similar. Um, yeah, they are quite similar. Yeah, mine is self-image, compassion, and getting mad, I suppose, is um, kind of what like you that. say about, like, that you deserve better and that, yeah. you know, like, the way the medical tre- medical establishment sometimes gets things wrong, that that's not your fault, yeah. you know, and, and feeling angry about it and channeling that anger for good, you know? I really like that one. I think that's a really, really good one. I, I, I internalise a lot of my anger as well and don't let it out. And I think it's important to you. Like the way we talk about, oh, don't police your emotions. It's not just for sadness. I think anger's a very valid one to feel too. But there's shame around feeling anger. So mm. I like that one. And now I want mm. to know, what does living well mean to you? Um, I think living well means allowing a body to have what it needs and I know that sounds really basic but it's it's being in tune with your body listening to it um knowing what signs mean what and not denying it the things that it needs um and that's different for every single person because living well is just it's so broad and that you know as you spoke about the wellness industry can make people feel like they're not doing enough they're not good enough um they're just just thinking negatively and they're not trying to change their destiny or whatever mystical stuff that it says. But I think it's as simple as asking for help. If you need more self-compassion and self-kindness, if you need to rest, if you need to shout, if you, you know, allowing it to actually like to grant your body, I think, and yourself and your mind to have what it needs. I think as much as you can, just being in tune and listening and having time to check in and be a bit more introspective and start to figure out what it means. Because you know what, at the beginning, sometimes the signs your body gives in terms of it needing something cannot be clear to you because Mm. you haven't actually had conversation with it. You haven't actually built a relationship learning what those signs are. So even taking the time to learn what those signs mean, I think is what you deserve mm. that's what everybody deserves so as much as I can I try to like yeah converse actually have a conversation a relationship to know what the signs mean so I can allow myself to have um what I want and in more so in an internal way um and that has helped a lot so now I ask for help more now I rest more now I take days off work if I'm actually sick you know now I do those things mm. and I think it's been a lot better than I was six years ago. So I'm in a different place. I still want to be better, but you know, that's the process. I don't think we ever completely reached the destination, simply consistently trying to do better for ourselves. I think that's what that I would say living well means mm. to me. And one of the ways that, sorry, small sub question, one of the ways that um, you have got to know yourself and got to know those cues is, I know you do meditation and you do your morning pages Tell, yes. us, tell us quickly about those. 
So I do um, meditation, Vedic meditation twice a day where, you know, 20 minutes uh, at the beginning. Sometimes I, I sometimes I do miss out on it sometimes, but then I also don't beat myself on that anymore. But just to empty my mind and try to like help with the stress. But then also with the morning pages, it's simply three pages a day of your stream of consciousness that you just write in the morning. It's not supposed to be anything structured. It's just in the morning. Let's say you're like, oh, today I felt so angry when I woke up because my mum left a cup on the... Like, that's that's if that's what's in your head, you just write write that. And it becomes a habit. So after a while, it gets easier and you're just writing like, you know, you, you write what's in your brain, basically, without trying to self-edit. So yeah, stream of consciousness without self-editing, without trying to make it look pretty. Those things have been quite helpful. But also not beating yourself up that you're not doing these special things that are supposed to help you find yourself. Also being like, oh, I missed I missed out on doing it that day. That's fine too. You know, no mm. pressure, basically. Yeah, Less pressure. That's, that's amazing. The morning pages sounds really, really helpful. Um, yeah, it's great. All, all the guests that I speak to have got their own coping mechanisms and their own tips for, for living well and like optimizing their, their well-being. But but I really, really like that one. I'm gonna have to give it. I'm gonna have to give it a go. You Definitely. might have to hold me to account, Jam. <laughs> Actually, while we're here, can you just be my personal coach? I mean, I, I love all your tips, so <laughs> um, that's all we've got time for this week. But I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you want to hear more about Jam's work for You Look Okay to Me or her lupus journey, you can find her on www.youlookokaytome.com and on Twitter at Jam Prescott. And Instagram, you look okay to me, is basically, yeah, just Google it. <laughs> okay, good. Jan, thank you so, so much for joining me. That was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.